Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined by my old friends who are burdened with perception. Unlike Rachel Lind, Heidi White and Tim <laughs> we're, in the, we're in the age of the great quarantine, which it means that it's, uh, it's a good time to be reading Anne of Green Gables is what I decided while reading it today. So uh, welcome to the yes, show. And uh, it was uh, providential, I think, that we were not reading Catcher in the Rye at this time and that we are reading Anne of Green Gables. So. I think that's right. I think that's right. So yeah, Absolutely. We, we are um, we're here uh, to discuss chapters 7 through 12 of Anne of Green Gables. Uh, some delightful chapters. Tim, before I do the spiel and all that, when I need to yeah. get two sentences, a quick first impression of your thoughts on Anne through these in these this section you hadn't read the book before but you said you found her delightful do you find her more yeah. delightful less delightful maybe a little more annoying this time what's your what's your what's your take on actually a little a little more delightful she uh, because um of the exchange with mrs lind i mean <laughs> i just i mean i had already kind of converted to Anne, but i love that that chapter i loved it you're cheering her on for sure <laughs> Uh, I love how um, similar the two of them are. Maybe we can talk about that at some point. Uh, Anne and Rachel Lynn, that is, uh, at least in some in some ways. But yeah, we're here to talk about chapter 7 through 12, and we will do that in a minute. I want to remind you that you can join the conversation. You can head over to Facebook and join the Close Reads podcast discussion group. If you search Close Reads in the search bar, you'll find it. You can click the join button, and we will uh, allow you to join that. And then you can also follow us on Instagram at Close Reads Pods. We have our email newsletter. That is closereads.substack.com. And then finally, there is also the Patreon episodes. If you want to support the show, get some sweet show swag, and then also get access to some bonus episodes, then you can go to patreon.com slash closereads. And we just dropped the fourth, I believe, uh, bonus episode for our Patreon listeners on crime and punishment. Uh, Tim and Heidi have been uh, taking you through part two. Um, and so thanks to both of you for doing that. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll drop uh, the fifth episode uh, starting on uh, on part three. So we are well into common punishment. Is there anything that either of you have discovered about crime and punishment through these conversations that you had not thought of previously? Heidi, what about you? Yes, but I can't tell you what they are. They are on the bone. All of that is on the bonus episode. So you'll just wow. have to listen. Wow. Tim, are you going to take this hard line as well? I am. I am going to keep the hard line. So like because, no spoilers? David, in this time of national emergency, <laughs> what we need <laughs> is to stand together, to unite, to... That's to true. So then you're not going to share content. You're just going to make it exclusive. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think we said this the last time we talked about it. I think that these are some of the best episodes that I've ever been a part of. I mean, I just think the book is so. You mean because I have. No, 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 no. No. Um, just this book, I don't know. This book is sort of, I mean, eliciting something from us. I think that's um, it's just really it deep and rich. Yeah. I have a good friend it who... It is special. It's, go ahead. No, I am all in on whatever you're about to say. Well, <laughs> I was just going to say that I have a good friend who works 60 runs a hospital, I guess. So, you know, he's the, he's the guy that 
decides, you know, he's keeping track of how many beds there are and all that sort of thing. So he has been, um, you know, in preparing for everything that's going on right now. And he picked up Camus, the plague, um, which is, Mm. if you know him, it, you know, it makes a lot of sense that he pick up that book right now. But I said, I, you know, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I could do that right now. I don't know if I could dive into the plague. And he said something like, it's uh, pretty um, amazing. You know, the things you can learn from that book, um, the things that, that it's telling the truth about. And I said, yeah, I was reading, I've been reading crime and punishment for this podcast we do. And it's amazing how many uh, things in crime and punishment are actually related to what we're going through right now as well. So, um, mm-hmm. but but, uh, you know, that's a, as we, as you guys said, that's a conversation for a different podcast. So if people mm-hmm. want to get access to those bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash postfeeds. I also wanted to let people know that we just today, well, I guess last night launched, uh, our annual literature, uh, bracket, our, our March madness bracket. There is no, you know, basketball March madness this year, unfortunately, uh, with everything going on, but we, we did launch our literature one and we took 32 uh, uh, literature couples, couples of literature, and we pitted them against each other. So you can vote in round one of that for na- of right now. And that will last through Thursday, I believe. Th- round one will end on Thursday night. So uh, by the time this goes up, it'll be Wednesday. So that'll give you another day to go vote if you haven't done that yet. But you can uh, head over to the Facebook page or Instagram or the newsletter and you can find a link to that. Have you, have you voted? I've not voted yes. yet. I had a really hard time with Aragorn and Arwen versus Anne Elliot and Captain Wentworth. I just like stared at my computer screen. I couldn't decide. That's a hard one. Everyone, everyone is um, up in arms about some of these matchups. Like I'm trying to hurt their children or something, um, which is fair. But then the other part of it is I don't really <laughs> go into it thinking, well, how can I hurt people's you know, how can I hurt people's hearts? Uh, I, most of it's randomized. <laughs> so, uh, mm-hmm. um, at least mostly randomized. So, you know, it's not on purpose. <laughs> Some things are on purpose, I suppose. A couple of them were on purpose, but you know. Right. Tim, if you had to do Elizabeth Bennett and Darcy, Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, up against <laughs> Narcissus and Narcissus, who would you choose? <laughs> up against Narcissus and Narcissus. Yeah. It's not Narcissus and Echo. Nope, Narcissus well, no, Narcissus himself, man. That's not the great love story. <laughs> that's that's so good. Man, I almost want to vote Narcissus and Narcissus just because of the humor quotient. It would just skyrocket the yeah. humor quotient. <laughs> we we had to um we had to keep a couple of them light. You know, people get so serious about these things. So we included right. that we did um, we got a little bit of flack for including, well, mostly from Matt Bianco, for including uh, Wesley and Buttercup from The Princess Bride. They're going up against uh, Jane Eyre and Edward <laughs> Rochester. But you know what? That's a great book. That is a great book. And one day we should do it on this podcast. And then also we included uh, Gollum and the Wesley Brand. and Buttercup are winning right now. Probably. I was just looking at the scores. That is uh, a surprise to me. I'm, I'm really bamboozled by that particular choice. <laughs> Even though you're right, it is a good book. I mean, I thought, I figured so, that would be a, a, you know, I didn't think that one would be close, but, you know, the Princess Bride uh, fans, I guess, are coming out in mass. I'm sure the Jane Eyre people will, so. will rally back. And then the other one was Gollum in the Ring. Good for them. That was the other funny one we included. Yeah, that was good. Um, Gollum in the Ring. That That's clever. <laughs> That's very clever. Okay. But one of the couples we did include was uh, related to Anne of Green Gables. So we should go ahead and dive into that conversation. And uh, Tim, you were talking about how 
you were rooting for her in her quest to uh or her her response to to rachel lind um yeah and do do you um do (laughs) i was i was i was kind of just thinking about the different ways that someone can respond to this book so say it's the first time you've read it or your kids are reading it or whatever one of the great things i love about it is that when you're a kid it's kind of like tom sawyer in a way uh where you know it can be just delightful adventure and and you know speaking to all the things that children need in in books um yeah inspiring and beautiful language and all those sorts of things but there's also so much uh sort of subtlety in between the lines uh that adults i think that's really appealing to adults i was thinking about how the character of matthew for example so so much of his character comes to life because of the way marilla talks to him like you don't Mm -hmm. he doesn't say what he's doing but she's responding to him like at the end of this section, it says that something about, um, or at the end of one of the chapters in this section, it says something about how she says, you don't need to act that way, or I'm paraphrasing, but you know, you don't, don't act that way. Don't give me that look. And it never says that he's giving her the look, but Marilla's, you know, <laughs> Marilla's response to him shows, shows you everything you need to know. So there's, there's uh-huh. nice subtle things like that as well. But I was also thinking about how, what I mentioned earlier, there, in many ways, Anne is not that different from Rachel Lind. And then in some ways she's very different. Um, and you see it just in the way they spoke to each other. So I was thinking, uh, that got me thinking about what's the, the question of conflict. So many of the books that we read or that anybody reads ever is built around the concept of conflict, right? Like mm-hmm. you're writing a play. And so you get into, um, you get into thinking about what is a character need or want? What do they, what do they have to overcome? All those sorts of things. And I got thinking about how so early in this book, what she wants is given to her. You know, she wants a family and she's given to her. And so then it becomes like, what is this book about after that? Like structurally, you know, and then so she runs into people like Rachel Lynn, who she defeats, but then, so to speak, but then within like a chapter, Rachel Lynn is actually kind of in some ways sort of an interesting winning sort of appealing character who's a little rough around the edges. And so there really isn't anybody or anything in the book that is, you know, the dragon to be slayed, slain, slayed, slain. So anyway, I'm rambling slain, slain. Yeah. So I'm rambling about this a little bit because it got me thinking, well, what is the thing that she has to overcome? You know, what is in a traditional sense, what is this book sort of about? Have you thought about that as someone who's reading it for the first time? And then after you respond, Heidi, I want you to respond to him as the person who's read this 722 times. (laughs) I have tried to think about what this book is about. And I, I I have made surmises about other books in the past and have been proven like, you know, that my surmises were wrong, totally wrong. So I'm a little bit reluctant to say what I think this book is about, especially like, cause Heidi is sort of like smiling at me through the audio waves being like, I've read this. And a very condescending. Yes, right, right, right. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> and, and as soon as I say it, she's going to have to like fight an outburst of laughter. You know, but Tim, <laughs> we know that's that not what it's about. You're burdened with perception, so use that burden. That's true. That's very true. I'm, maybe not or overburdened. Maybe after though, this, you know what I mean. You'll say I'm not <laughs> overburdened with perception. <laughs> Fair. Okay, I think, I think this is a story. I think it's a little bit of a coming of age story for Anne 
but I, so I think Anna's going to change during the course of the story. Um, and I think the way that she'll probably, oh gosh, I think the way that she's going to need to change is she's going to need to address her anger issues, which in a strange way, it's like, they're the most, what I've, from what I've seen thus far, the most fun parts of the book is when she's just like so mad at somebody and she just spits, not venom, like actually the truth at them and gets in trouble for it for everybody around her. I also think that the book is probably going to be much more about everyone who comes in contact with her. And I have a feeling they might end up changing even more than she does. That's my hunch. Am I right? Am I right? I'm a right. 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 What's the question for me? <laughs> Having read it 722 times. <clears throat> well, my question what is the book about? Was, What's the conflict is, of the book? Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, you know, what I was saying is that when you just, just sort of traditional ways you think about conflict in a book are just eliminated right away within the fourth chapter. She's got what she wants. Right. Then within a couple more chapters, the person who you hate in the first chapter, or at least sort of disdain or whatever, you, she's uh-huh. been told, you know, there's been catharsis there. And then after she apologizes, Rachel's not actually so bad as you think. And then she, a couple of chapters later, she gets her best friend. So it's just sort of like all the things that are sort of that she desires and wants right away are all, um, are all given to her. So all the sort of things you have to overcome to get the thing you want are kind of pushed out of the way. Right. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny. Your, your question to me and to Tim is apt, right? Because we're on two opposite ends of the spectrum. This is Tim's first time reading this book and it's my 722nd time reading this book. And I, I almost find it as difficult to answer as Tim does because I've read it so much and because I'm so familiar with it and because I'm so entwined with it. I'm sitting here thinking like I'm, I'm doing that like mouth open posture. (laughs) I'm sitting here like, what is this book about? Um, Side note, I have long thought that that thinker statue should have just been somebody with their mouth open. The thinker pose, no one actually does that. We all just sit there with our mouth open. Nobody does that, right? That's how you try to look like the thinker when you know that someone's looking at you and wonders what kind of profound thoughts you're thinking. If you actually are thinking, you've got your mouth open. Um, I, I do think that this is a book about the redeeming power of an ordinary life, which is kind of exactly what Tim is saying. The interaction of relationships that cut and, and what you're saying, David, that they, the interaction of relationships that weave in and out of your life and have a specific moment in time that do something to you, but then later they kind of change and then it's moves on to somebody else or something else. Um, and it is a bit of a coming of age story, but it's not in the modern sense, a coming of age story, like a tree grows in Brooklyn when all of a sudden Anne is going to, you know, the Nazis are going to come and she loses her innocence. Like, it's not like that. It's just the ordinary path of, of life and how that, how people change and grow through that and the profound impact of small things 
um, on our lives. Um, so I guess that's the best I can do because you're right. There are no monsters in the story. There's no bad guys in the story. It's just a, an ordinary life mm. um, that brings along with it, you know, just mountains of grace, I mm. guess. Is it like a lot of coming of age stories, modern coming of age stories are centered around a loss of innocence. Like even Catcher in the Rye is a story of a loss of innocence in a way. Yeah. That's actually why Um, I wanted to do these books next to each other. Because this one doesn't I mean, my guess again, risking sounding like I'm not overburdened by perception is my risk. my, My hunch is that this is a coming of age story. That's not about loss of innocence. Maybe if anything else, it's like the infection of innocence from Anne to (laughs) the other people that are around her. Because that's kind of what has happened thus far in these first 12 chapters. No one is really enthused about her. And then they actually meet her. And all of them kind of gradually, even Mrs. Rachel by the end of this section is kind of like, man, I can't imagine life without her now. Mm. Right. Yeah, so... I was thinking one of the reasons this came up that I, I, I started realizing this might be a book you have to read um, differently than other books. And so would you guys agree with that? That, that because, because yeah. in that way, it doesn't fit the traditional, you know, story arc model that you may have to read it differently. Yeah, I think that that's true. But does it matter? I think that's true. <laughs> like, is it is should we do should we do more with a book like this than I take delight in it? I guess is one way. I mean, because one of the things that this section mm-hmm. in particular talked about a lot was the concept of moralizing, right? Because Marilla has been mm-hmm. sort of conditioned, or 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 at least become accustomed to, you know, or feels the need to um, add a moral to every everything that she, that she and Anne are talking about everything yeah. and stuff like that. And I actually was thinking about how a lot of parents right now might be home with their kids doing teaching them in a way that they've never mm-hmm. taught them before. And so there might so for some people for some parents there might be this instinct to like take every to create a lesson for everything that your kids are learning. So it just it just struck me that there might be something you know similar in what Marilla is doing there as in terms of experiencing something new. So on the one hand, this book seems to be about this character who just takes delight in things the way Anne views the world and Marilla, who is, um, you know, trying to figure out what is the lesson that this thing can teach me all the time. So are we supposed to read, mm-hmm. are we supposed to read the book in one of those two ways as well? Do you think like, are we supposed to just take delight in this book or should we be looking to analyze this book for what it can teach us and, and so forth? What do you think, Heidi, as someone who's read it 723 times? Right. Um, so I presume you just read it while I was talking again. (laughs) (laughs) So I would strongly caution against any sort of analysis in this book. I'm trying to think what it would have been like if I had read this book in school versus if I had picked the way I did read it, which was picked it up and loved it and was formed by it. So this, and I, I said this in the last episode, this is the book that, um, or this is the series of books 
that makes me believe in books. So, and I, there's a lot of things that I have done wrong in my life, but I read Anne of Green Gables the right way as a child, which was, I picked it up and I read it and I fell in love with it and I immersed myself in it and nobody taught it to me. Nobody analyzed it. Nobody tried to tell me that Anne was a fictional character and that that's not how real life humans process trauma. And that was unrealistic. And Mm. nobody made any kind of moral lesson out of it. I just read it and it did a work on my soul. And, and then that changed me. And, and so the idea of teaching Anne of Green Gables to a child or any kind of just purely delightful children's literature, like Wind in the Willows um, or Little Britches, or like I believe in doing these on the podcasts, but do not make a lesson plan out of anything that we say on this podcast. <laughs> just read the books. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, yeah, I don't think, and, and I think she is too. You mentioned last week, David, that um, Lucy Maud Montgomery might be kind of um, at the sit you know, with one hand elevating the romantic ideal and on the other hand, kind of winking at it and making fun of it a little bit. And I, mm-hmm. that's, I think that's a hundred percent true. Mm-hmm. And so even the moralizing, right? Like definitely Lucy Maud Montgomery is winking at the audience when talking about Marilla is moralizing. So mm-hmm. she, that's, she's making gentle fun of her for it. So we definitely should not imitate that. <laughs> D- Tim, does, do you find that instinctively that's um, like to read a book purely for delight comes instinctively to you? Ooh. Ooh. I, that's such a great question. I think as a young person, the answer would have been yes. I don't think I would have or did read for any other reason. But I think. Um, because I've read so much and because I kind of gravitate toward books that have a very hefty reputation, I think I have turned my attention toward like, you know, discovering deeper themes and, um, you know, character tropes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I think this book kind of, it, it signals pretty early that this is the way that you're supposed to read it, even as an adult. This is a book that is um, episodes of delight. It's not a. It's not frivolous at all. Hmm. But it's also. I, I almost imagine I like that you know that, um, that it's not frivolous. Yeah, it's a, it's a full of episodes of delight and to take delight in. But that doesn't mean that it's frivolous. It doesn't mean yeah. that it's not worth it. Yeah. Was it Jaber Crow that has the foreword from Wendell Berry that, you know, a reader should not like yeah. try to yeah. read for themes? I, I almost feel like that um, statement is in the first couple of chapters of this book. I think y- you, you, a, a good reader will just dial um, his reading focus toward just taking pleasure in Anne and what she gets up to in this kind of black and white cottage town and trying to read for something deeper um, is not what the author has asked you to do. Hmm. 
So, well, what do you mean by that last bit? I mean, I, I, you said, well, cause you said, you said that reading for something deeper is not what the author is asking us. I guess the question is, what do you mean by deeper? Well, I think, okay, I'll, I'll use crime and punishment. Heidi and I were talking during the last recording. There's one character, Lusion, who, um, he identifies, you know, with like young people. He's this middle-aged bureaucrat, but he really identifies and wants to signal that he is friendly with the new young ideas. So Heidi and I spent a long time talking about, okay, what are those ideas that he was signaling that he embraces? And what does our author think about those ideas that he's signaling that he's embracing? What does the main character think? And just... And there was so much there. And I'm not saying that none of that is in this book, but I don't think that our author is, is writing. Um, I don't think I have not met a character yet that is an articulation of like burgeoning ideals from the early 20th century you know what I mean? Like, I just don't think that's what mm-hmm. Anne of Green Gables is about. It's, it's, it's relationships are clear. Um, the conflicts are clear. The humor is clear and it's not, it's not submerged. I, I feel like I'm in danger of saying this book is not, is, is like I said earlier, frivolous. It's not at all. Mm-hmm. But I also just think that it's the play is deliberately on the surface of it. Heidi, do you want to respond to that? I think that, I think Tim, you're getting at something really important. You're right. There's a very big distinction between um, the literature that is intended to kind of plumb the depths of human depravity and suffering and um and offer some kind of answer or at least an invitation to join in the questioning together right and um i think that that's true i think one thing that montgomery is doing in her work is an attempt to say this kind of ordinary life is just as profound as that, just as redeeming in its ordinariness than, you know, kind of the, uh, the, kind of the, this, I don't want to say analysis because that's not the wrong word, but kind of that same, that idea of plumbing the depths of human suffering. And so I think that you're right. Like she is deliberately writing characters that don't have, that have not committed axe murder. <laughs> um, yeah. She's not writing about small time, small town Canada. That's supposed to be equivalent the same way that, um, that say William Faulkner writes about small town America. Yeah. Um, and in a similar time period, um, but I think what she is saying is with big caricatures, like this caricatures, the same way that Flannery O'Connor does it in the opposite way of saying, here's my big caricature of darkness. Mm. Lucy Ma Montgomery is saying, here's my big caricature of joy mm. and of, the, of simplicity and an ordinary life. 
And this is just as real as Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor and Dostoevsky. I think she's trying to do something in her work, not just Anne Green Gables, but in her in her work that is that is an invitation to saying this is just as profound a life as you who are reveling in darkness. Mm. Okay, so as you guys have been talking, something came to mind because Heidi, you mentioned that last time I I mentioned very briefly that in some ways it feels like she is Maud Montgomery, that it's is making fun of the perspectives and, and worldviews of the romantics. And we also know, as you said mm-hmm. last, last week, that she was involved in the transcendentalist movement in America. That, is that right? That's what you were talking about? Yeah, she was. She had a lot of sympathy for Thoreau and Walton Shue Emerson. She was sure. a big fan yeah. of them, although not in the same circles. Okay, okay. So, well, okay, so let's take those two things then. And my question then becomes, to what extent should people bring that to the reading experience of a book like this? And then I guess, secondly, you know, what, what's the place of it on a podcast like this? I mean, we could have just had this conversation off the air, but uh, hopefully people will, would enjoy it. So on the one hand, we've got the questions of her making fun of the romantics, which may or may not actually, mm-hmm. I don't know that she ever wrote about that, but it certainly seems to be there. And then the question of transcendentalism. So from your perspective, as someone who's read the book 724 times by now, do you, um, <laughs> do you, uh, how do you feel about bringing those, those things like those two things to a book, which we're saying is perfectly valid all on its own as a non-frivolous thing that is worth taking delight in? How, how do you answer that question? Sure. I mean, again, I, it's, I'm so far down the road with these, with these books that uh, Anne of Green Gables was my first introduction to any kind of literary reading. And so because I read Anne of Green Gables, then when I read, say, Wordsworth or Keats um, or Shakespeare, I recognized Anne in them. So I'm coming at it in a bit of an opposite way. and But I think that's how most children who are immersed in wonderful children's literature, how they... This kind of education, if you're, I know a lot of our listeners are homeschooling their children uh, or have them in classical schools, uh, or at least have kind of this similar mindset of raising children through the immersion in, in great stories, that's going to be their pathway too. When they when they read Shakespeare, they're going to say, oh, a rosemary and another name would smell, smell as sweet. I got that from Anne. That's how I... Mm. awakened to literature. So was through the illusions that I found their source after I had already read Anne of Green Gables 500 times. So that, and then that, those, then those illusions that I found in their original sources connected to the delight that I had already experienced in Anne. And so then I'm like, oh, well, I get it. That's in Romeo and Juliet. So I'll probably like this because I liked that. And so I think that's a perfectly good way of reading. I would much, I, I loved that pathway of awakening to literary things rather than having it spoon fed to me that, you know, this is a book that glorifies the romantics. At the same time, there was a lot of realism going on and Lucy Montgomery felt that that was too bleak. So she wrote Anne as an antidote to that, right? So I, 
that would have, I don't know that it would have quenched my delight, but it definitely wouldn't have fed it. So I, I think that you can, if again, I always, I mean, we talked about this a lot on the podcast. If that's like, that's not necessary in reading a story. Although some people like to make connections. I like to make connections. So reading that stuff later is interesting to me, but not necessarily formative to me. Mm. Tim, as someone who's new to the book, David, do, do, you, do you find <laughs> that you, um, that you need that stuff to make the book more substantial does does knowing does talking about the romantics and the no so so you don't know that's just it's it's interesting but the book all on its own is perfectly substantial for you yeah and i i have to admit like i'm a little bit of a radical in this regard so for close reads i make my absolute best effort to not get to never look at any sort of like critical theory, critical readings, critical commentaries or anything like that. I have a little bit with crime and punishment because it is, there are so many ideas that are sort of like attached to characters in that book. But for the most part, like I didn't, I didn't read anything for um, Catcher in the Rye. Um, I read no reviews of Peace Like a River. I mean, I can't remember the last time that I read something in preparation or outside of the reading that was about the reading. And partly I do that because I I like to keep a certain naivete for the sake of the show. And I don't. And the other reason is I want the text to be really close to me. And I, I am a little bit reluctant to put a critical theory or a critical reading or a critical commentary between me and the text. Now, Anne of Green Gables is the perfect book in my estimation for just reading directly because I don't think you need to know anything about the transcendentalist or the romantics to thoroughly enjoy the book. But I will say there are books that we probably won't read on this podcast, like James Joyce's Ulysses. I think the the couple of times that I have tried to read that book, the only mm-hmm. time that I actually made any progress was when I had sort of a critical commentary in my right hand and the book in the left hand, because that book is so dense. It is symbolically so dense. It is historically, literarily so dense that I was lost until I kind of could have someone sit on my shoulder and tell me, Hey, this is what he's alluding to here. Hey, this is an inside joke that a Dubliner would understand, you know, but that's not the case with, and it seems to me, it seems to me like if I had a critical commentary, if such a thing existed for End of Green Gables, I think it would probably hurt my reading. I think it'd probably right. take the joy of the reading away. Yep. I agree with that. I'm not a very good uh, like literary ideologue. And I actually <laughs> am a little bit of an advocate against being a literary ideologue. Like, I mean... Well, we've talked about this on the show a lot about um, we've all had friends or acquaintances that have tried to tackle. I have several friends that all, because they loved literature, 
went into literary criticism graduate degrees and every one of them walked out. And I'm saying every one of them because I mean every single one of them walked out and they had lost an affection for literature, which is, Mm -hmm. it seems like it's the opposite of what a literary critical graduate degree should teach you to do. But that's kind of the, it seems like that's the mode in higher education right now about reading literature, at least on a graduate level. I'm sure there are exceptions, Mm -hmm. but um, those exceptions are are few and far between. Mm. Right. Well, I'm recording on my phone. We're we're working from home. All the Cersei people are, so I'm not in my normal studio setup. And I'm recording on my phone, and I keep forgetting to unmute and keep forgetting to mute. So I'm uh, (laughs) I'm losing track of what you can hear and what you can't. Uh, Right now, I'm pretty confident you can hear (laughs) that. But let's let's shift. Let's shift gear then to the delight component of this book, which I think is what we'll focus on for most of these weeks. I did want to just talk about that for a little bit because I know that we had we had mentioned it. And you know, if there are moments when we when we're reading something or we're discussing something, and the the idea, hey, that might be her transcendentalism or her transcendentalist sympathies in play, or you know, making fun of the romantics, that I, it's worth mentioning uh, because that can be part of the delight, and some people will be interested in that. But um, we don't need to focus on it, but I didn't want to address it. Um, Heidi, during this section, Anne goes through many, uh, she goes through a, a whole, she's in a glass case of emotion for most of this. Actually, let me check that. She's just in a glass case of emotion for most of the book. Um, but do, it was, is there a, is, um, is there a particular moment in this section in her relationship with Marilla in particular that stands out to you? Because it really seems like during these chapters, uh, that they become much closer, you know, they become Marilla begins to appreciate her in new ways. And we learn a lot about Marilla herself, by the way, she responds to the people around her. So is there a, is there a moment or is there a scene? We can even read the passage if you'd like, uh, we can do, we can do a performance if you want of, of a particular passage that, that is about that. I, I think that one of the, insights into Marilla that it doesn't even take place between Marilla and Anne, but between Marilla and Rachel. And it's when Marilla defends Anne and reproaches Rachel for that, for what Rachel said about Anne's looks. Um, Marilla is not chapter 10. Really? She's a great, yes. She's such a good character. Um, and she lived, they lived at a time in which they, most people didn't think that children, this, this is just kind of the cultural climate of the time. People didn't think children felt as deeply as adults do, you know, they, they, and there's this sense in which Anne is an orphan and a child. And so, you know, and Marilla was raised very much children should be seen and not heard. So Marilla is not analytical about Anne at all. She's never looking at her like, oh, this poor child, uh, she must've been through so much. No, she's just, she's the Duchess from Wonderland. She's trying to morally inculcate her with these new, uh, these new principles and from which to guide her life. And she wants to teach her how to cook and be a good housekeeper. Um, and in so doing, she anchors Anne very firmly to the, uh, kind of the redeeming characteristics of what it means to be an ordinary person, which is really good for Anne because as you said, she's all up and down 
all the time. And she, as my mother once said about me, eats her emotions for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> so, um, like, um, and I feel like that's, that's what we've and, all been doing for the last yeah, week or so. Yes. Right. So, but I love how Marilla defends Anne. Um, so I don't know. We could read the whole section with the, the, between Mrs. Between Rachel Lind and Anne all the way up to Marilla or just Marilla and Rachel. I don't know, David, what do you think? Um, let's just read the, the Marilla and Rachel stuff. Um, I want to talk about how right. they, how she writes Anne. One of my things is the, some of the passages where Anne just gets going. And I love the way she writes that. So we can yeah, talk about that later. So great. I said chapter 10. I believe it's chapter nine though. Cause it's, it is so it's nine. in the middle of that chapter. Uh, for me, it's on page 92. I'm reading in the um, Aladdin edition. Um, but um, she, so it's after she says, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you and all that. Um, okay, so there's a, there's a part where it Damn says, stamp. did anybody ever see such a temper? Yes. Flames, the horrified Mrs. Rachel. Do you guys, do you see that? Yeah. All right, yes. Heidi, I'll let you, I'll let you read this. Uh, these next couple pages and if you want to pause as you're going and uh, talk about what you like or we can just talk about it when you're done but I'll let you take it away from there all right all right did you ever see such a temper exclaimed the horrified Mrs. Rachel and go to your room and stay there until I come up said Marilla recovering her powers of speech with difficulty Anne, bursting into tears, rushed to the hall door, slammed it until the tins on the porch wall outside rattled in sympathy and fled through the hall and up the stairs like a whirlwind. A subdued slam above told them that the door of the east gable had been shut with equal vehemence. Well, I don't envy you your job bringing that up, Marilla, said Mrs. Rachel with unspeakable solemnity. Marilla opened her lips to say she knew not what of apology or deprecation. What she did say was a surprise to herself then and ever afterwards. You shouldn't have twitted her about her looks, Rachel. Marilla Cuthbert, you don't mean to say that you're upholding her in such a terrible display of temper as we've just seen, demanded Mrs. Rachel indignantly. No, said Marilla slowly. I'm not trying to excuse her. She's been very naughty and I'll have to give her a talking to about it. But we must make allowances for her. She's never been taught what is right. And you were too hard on her, Rachel. Marilla could not help tacking on that last sentence, although she was again surprised at herself for doing it. Rachel got up with an air of offended dignity. Well, I see that I'll have to be very careful what I say after this, Marilla, since the fine feelings of orphans brought from goodness knows where have to be considered before anything else. Oh, no, I'm not vexed. Don't worry yourself. I'm too sorry for you to leave any room for anger in my mind. You'll have your own troubles with that child. But if you'll take my advice, which I suppose you won't do, although I've brought up 10 children and buried two, you'll do that talking to you mentioned with a fair-sized birch switch. I should think that would be the most effective language for that kind of a child. Her temper matches her hair, I guess. Well, good evening, Marilla. I hope you'll come down to see me often as usual, but you can't expect me to visit here again in a hurry if I'm liable to be flown at it, insulted in such a fashion. It's something new in my experience. Whereat, Mrs. Rachel swept out and away, if a fat woman who always waddled could be said to sweep away. And Marilla, with a very solemn face, betook herself to the east gable. 
Okay. So I love this scene because Marilla doesn't even know she's going to defend Anne. She doesn't, this thing that's happening in Marilla is that she's started to be changed by loving this child. Yeah. And she doesn't. Marilla is the one that swept away. Like she, yes, she is. And, and she has this affection for Anne and she's to your point that you made earlier, she's doing the same thing to Rachel that she's doing to Anne, which is trying to tack on a moral to everything. Right? You shouldn't have twitted her about her looks. That was, it was unkind of Rachel to do. And for once, Marilla is moved by her affection away from social convention um, and, and stands up for Anne and acts like a mother does. Moms do this all the time. We go into like this weird mama bear mode, even though we know our kids are wrong. Um, but to defend them becomes the primary uh, the primary motivation in a situation like this. So I, 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 it's just hilarious the way that, the way she phrases everything too is just so great. So yeah, anyway, I, was, I love that part. When I was reading this section, I underlined a bunch of lines like rattled in sympathy or like a whirlwind or unspeakable yep. solemnity or a very An solemn face. Dignity. Yeah. And, <laughs> yes. and there's, I love that the book, there's a, there's a part that really stuck out to me. I think it says that Matthew was smote or something. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I think it's in 10 or maybe nine. I marked it. Um, but I love it because the book, um, the book itself here. Okay. Here it is. Chapter 10, Matthew's heart smote him. And the book itself is as dramatic as Anne is, you know, like the way the book uh-huh. expresses the drama of it and, and the, you know, kind of, uh, the, um, in a way overdone drama of every moment. It makes the everyday life that you're talking about into this big romantic thing. Um, it, it's just, just in the same way that she is. And so the perspective is in that way is so sympathetic to Anne's perspective, not just her character, but her way of seeing the world is how the book sees the world, which I think really brings us into it in a really interesting way. Right. I completely agree. I want to read the last paragraph of chapter nine yeah, go. Um, as well. Uh, it's right after Marilla has told her she has to apologize. And Anne's like, I'll sit here and starve to death before I apologize. Um, and then she says, I guess I'll move up a little bit. Perhaps your imagination will be in better working order by the morning, said Marilla, rising to depart. You'll have the night to think over your conduct in and come to a better frame of mind. You said you would try to be a very good girl if we kept you at Green Gables, but I must say it hasn't seemed very much like it this evening. And this paragraph is great. Leaving this Parthian shaft to rankle in Anne's stormy bosom, Marilla descended to the kitchen, (laughs) grievously troubled in mind and vexed in soul. She was as angry with herself as with Anne because whenever she recalled Mrs. Rachel's dumbfounded countenance, her lips twitched with amusement and she felt a most <laughs> reprehensible desire to laugh. And I, mean, I just think it could every be word of Jane this Eyre, right? paragraph, it's brilliant. Like every word of this paragraph is so perfectly written because it has that extreme contrast between, as you pointed out, like overblown melodrama, the Parthian shaft wrangling in Anne's stormy bosom down to an yeah. actual true and uh, some pathos in the end of that sentence, right? She's grievously troubled in mind and vexed in soul. And that's not funny. That's just, she's, this is 
she's trying to figure out what to do about this child who has really displayed a serious fault. Um, and then, and then it switches again, it swings again from, you know, way overblown melodrama to like true emotional crisis to like just the hilarity of the situation, which tells you a lot about Marilla's character. Just the whole paragraph's a bit of a, a roller coaster, but a very well written, well crafted one that gives you uh, a lot of insight into this moment and into Marilla herself. And one of the things I love about it is the way that it kind of opens up Marilla's character and like how, she, as you said, she's changing. And that's sort of a mm-hmm. a delightful thing in and of itself to see someone who, like, to see the sly little the way she tries not to smile or she finds herself laughing or she she it says she was you know, discouraged or something to find herself, uh, you know, um, laughing at Anne or, you know, not feeling like she needed to dis or, or feeling herself thinking the same way as Anne, I think it says at one point. And so Anne sort of the way she wears off on, or that's not the way of saying it. That's too negative. The way she, um, just impacts people is with her pure, uh, energy and imagination is, uh, it's so fast the way that it happens. And I think that's, it's true the same way in the book. Okay, Tim, I've got a question for you now because you're, yeah. a, play, you're a playwright unless you stop being a playwright. Yeah. Can one no. ever stop being a playwright once one has become one? No, once, no, no, it's once ontological. you're a playwright. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it is a, playwright. It's a, it's a statement of... It's like being a king or queen in Narnia. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a metaphor in that. Um, there is. So Tim, this is a book that has a lot of dialogue a lot of back and forth, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's not you, the, the Anne Sherman Palladino who wrote Gilmore girls probably read a lot of Anna Green Gables when she was young. <laughs> I've or, never seen that show. Is it, is it, it's very talking. Is it daddy? Yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, any of the, you know, I'm, I'm sure many, many great screenwriters and playwriters, playwrights, uh, to say nothing of novelists probably read their fair share of Lucy Maud Montgomery. And I was wondering if yeah. there is a particular moment or scene or, bit of back and forth that is particularly um, exciting to you as someone who does that for a living that, that, you know, and also for fun. It's not a back and forth, but it is a bit of uh, verbal fireworks from Anne, which is when she kind of goes to apologize to Miss Lynn. Cause it's, I'm just going to read the section. Yeah, so I was going to, I don't know, this like perfect midway through chapter 10. Yeah. So, so to kind of set the scene, Anne does not want to go apologize. Matthew kind of comes to her and in his gentle way, is just like, hey, Anne, you just got to get it over with. And Anne does it. So she goes to Miss Lynn. Oh, Miss Lynn, I am so extremely sorry, she said with a quiver in her voice. I could never express all my sorrow. No, not if I used up a whole dictionary. You must uh, just imagine it. I behave terribly to you. And I've disgraced the dear friends, Matthew and Marilla, who let me stay at Green Gables, although I am not a boy. I am dreadfully wicked and ungrateful child, and I deserve to be punished and cast out by respectable people forever. It was very wicked of me to fly into a temper because you told me the truth. It was the truth. Every word you said is true. My hair is red, and I'm freckled and skinny and ugly. What I said to you was true, too. But I shouldn't have said it. Oh, Miss Lynn, please, please forgive me. If you refuse it, if you refuse, it will be a lifelong sorrow on a poor little orphan girl. Would you, even if she had a dreadful temper? 
Oh, I'm sure you wouldn't. Please say you forgive me, Miss Lind. I just think it's so lovely that she does. I think that like Anna's completely penitent here, but she just can't, <laughs> she can't help but say what I said was the truth too, but I shouldn't have said it. Like she kind of like stings her back. And I also love that her, like her, she goes from absolutely refusing to apologize to completely flipping and saying, I am dreadfully wicked and ungrateful girl, and I deserve to be punished and cast out by respectable people forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's just well, that's why I said there's not that much of a difference. Goes. It's radical. <laughs> that, well, she because she eats her promotions, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. that's why I said there's yeah. not there are so many similarities between Rachel and Anne. Uh, you know, I mean, perhaps. You know, perhaps once upon a time, Rachel was as precocious as Anne was in her own way. Um, and, and, and Rachel said something like, you know, I'm outspoken, don't mind me. And so in their outspokenness, they kind of, it's like um, Rachel realizes in a strange way that there's their kindred spirit. I mean, Rachel has become, you know, a prejudiced, uh, busy body person type person who sits on her porch and likes to, you know, gossip but you know without the right upbringing or with a certain set of circumstances you could see Anne becoming that type of person too um yeah you know if she were to you know get a little bit more cynical and so i i i find that really interesting that Anne is constantly looking for a kindred spirit and seems to find that in diana but also you know that there is something similar in all of these characters that she runs into which suggests there's sort of like something very human about you know, the way Anne sees the world that can be lost. And so what's happening is not so much that they're all these people are being, you know, uh, given something new, but that something is being reborn in them. Cause in Matthew, in, in Marilla, in, um, in Rachel, all these people, it seems like there's something that's sort of dormant that gets renewed in them more than something that um is is completely fresh do you do, yeah, does that make yeah, sense yeah. yeah it does it does maybe that's why as adults yeah. adults love reading this book so much you know kids love it obviously especially girls but you know as adults we're just completely taken by Anne as well you know it's not just matthew and marilla that are taken by her because she has a rekindling effect is that what you mean yeah it, you know maybe yeah. rekindle something in us as well yeah i think it's true Yeah, me too. <laughs> Sorry, I had a mute problem there. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Well, I'm, we Save have to me, say Heidi. something about this podcast. I know you said something earlier about it, David, <laughs> but this podcast has been sort of like a Harold Pinter play. A Harold Pinter <laughs> is famous for what are called the Pinter pauses. Like at the most awkward moment, there's a pause. <laughs> well done. Well done. Thank. Uh, Have you ever thought of you. writing your own Pinter play? I had a little, I had like a time that I was inserting Pinter pauses everywhere. And finally I was just like, dude, like, I mean, like <laughs> borrow, but this is a kind of ha- a ham fisted stealing that you're doing. I had to kind of get past. What's it. the um, defining characteristic of a Mac a McKin, a McIntyre? <laughs> A Macintosh, a Macintosh, a Tam Macintosh. Yeah. 
uh, it's appropriately placed. Well, do you, I don't know what to say. Uh, he pauses. What is your defining characteristic? He has tons of pauses. What do you have tons of? Oh, gosh. Heads. I have lots of horse heads. <laughs> <laughs> Vocal semicolons. I don't. <laughs> well, we, we've gone for more than an hour now. Um, we should probably start wrapping it up, but uh, is there anything else that either of you want to mention? Any passages or moments that you feel like we can't let, let go by in, in this episode before we go on to next week? And as a reminder, next week we are going to be reading chapters 13 through 16. I got my passage that I wanted read. I got it in. I really wanted that passage, Rick, because I loved it. I loved it so much. <laughs> Heidi? I think that one of the sweetest things, I mentioned this last week, but one of the sweetest things about this book is her, um, the insight that she has into her own spiritual life. Um that the way that she prays, the way that she goes to church, like she hasn't been. Um, hmm. There's a self-awareness in kind that. Of, yes, I do mean that. But I also mean there is, as Tim pointed out about innocence, kind of the coming of age in a lot of modern stories is the loss of innocence. However, in this particular story it's Anne's the fact that Anne has never been to church before and yet has this purity of soul so that when she goes to church she she has not been malformed by moralistic conventions and and therefore she has a a truly pure experience with prayer and I mean that that prayer that she gives is is so funny, you know, her first prayer, yours sincere, yours obediently, or or whatever she says. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh and and she thanks God for the snow queen and for the white way of delight. Right. And and she imagines herself in that picture approaching Jesus and having Jesus receive her. And I find that to be a, a very sweet kind of um objective correlative to her being brought into the community of Anne of Green Gables, um, at, mm. excuse me, of Green Gables, mm. that she is, she's like this little child and she puts herself into the story approaching God and being welcomed by him, even though she's shy and doesn't know what she should do. And, um, uh, but at the same time, again, Lucy Maud Montgomery with her kind of like, uh, wickedly satirical sense of humor is also not afraid to point out that, hey, their Sunday school and their church is a little bit silly sometimes too. So I, there's always this juxtaposition that that this swinging, this kind of wild swinging bef- between overly sentimental and satirical that works really well because one or the other wouldn't work in this story. But because she swings so extremely between them, as a writer, it creates this balance, um, which I, I think is yeah. great. Like, I love how she comes home and says all the things. And then Morella is like, I agree with that. I thought that about Superintendent Bell's sermon or prayers too, and the minister's sermons too. So she is poking fun at, <laughs> it was, uh, had been unspoken. at that culture. Yes, but she's poking fun at that culture. But at the same time, she is 
Anne, Anne is the little girl who wants to approach Jesus and is being welcomed in, which would be way overly sentimental in another story that didn't have such good writing. Um, but it definitely mm-hmm. works in this story because it has that kind of swing back and forth with the satire as well. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that's insightful. I think that's exactly right, Heidi. There's this extent to which Thanks. it's dealing with these actually pretty rich, deep spiritual questions, um, mm. such as how she's sitting in church and the prayer there is, you know, um, boring, right? Which Yeah, it and, takes and, too long and he doesn't sound like he's talking to God. He sounds like he thinks God is far away. <laughs> but then she looks outside and she sees something beautiful and there's this, you know, there is this moment where she realizes the book at one point, I couldn't find it just looking for it now, but it mentions the idea that she sees things as sacred and mm-hmm. um, and it uses the idea of solemnity and things like that. And it's not a book that, that dismisses the concepts of sp- not just spirituality, but the idea that there is a sacredness in the world and there's a solemnity in the world, which is worth taking delight in. And that she, so she sits in church and she looks outside and sees this beautiful thing and her, her, it's her first real prayerful moment, right? Where she says, thank you God for this beautiful thing, essentially. And Merla's like, don't say it out loud. And she says, no, I knew not to do that. <laughs> and so it can, it can touch on these deep ideas of like the world being a sacred place and that we ought to take delight in it. While at the same time doing that in such a humorous way that, you know, that keeps it being delightful and keeps the story from moralizing that point. And as you said, that's the gift of this writer where we can deal with these, compl- these, these things that really actually are things that like the early church fathers were talking about, or C.S. Lewis would write about, or, you know, Augustine would write about, right. but in here they're, they're treated in a way that it can do that within the context of the story without turning the story into something that's moralized. And that, that not everybody can do that as you're saying. Um, so I love that it, that it, it offers that to us as well. You know, if you, if you want to talk about that, you can, but you know, not everybody, no, not every 10 year old is reading it is going to notice that probably most aren't, but, but, but even so, even if they don't notice it, even if they can't name it as Marilla couldn't, there's still a sense that the book is helping us all see the, the sacredness of the world and be thankful for it. You know, that in the nature right. of something being beautiful is a sacred thing. Like it's sacred because right. God created it beautiful. And this is a book that can help us see that without being moralizing and being able to toe that fine line is um, a proof of great skill to your point. Again, you made the point. I just was restating it. Right. Well, and I just was even thinking as you were talking, how, how funny it is, how ironic that it would be inappropriate for Anne to say out loud in church what a profound experience she's having with God, right? That's that's not what church is for. Um, right. But be quiet. Um, right. But, and she says at one point, there's a difference between praying and saying your prayers, but that is mitigated. Like that statement is is mitigated She's not, Lucy Montgomery's not saying that church has no value or that it should just be like a private relationship with God. She's not using Anna's way of saying, go out in nature. And it's the same thing as church because she is, um, 
she's having such a beautiful experience with the Lord's prayer, which is a rote prayer, right? And that is what her memorizing the Lord's prayer is what brings her into the parlor where she sees the picture of Jesus and sees herself approaching Christ. So it is through prayer, rote prayers, that she is, you know, the thing she's memorizing by heart is Oof. is not being dismissed by the author either. So yeah. there really is, to your point, David, a holistic spirituality uh, that is profoundly Christian and sacramental, um, that but's not moralistic or preachy in any way. And to your point, that profoundly impacted me as a child. Like I, I saw Christianity, I saw the faith that I was raised with through Anne's eyes. Whereas I think I might've gone more of the Marilla way without a story like this. Hmm. So I'm regardless of what her personal theology was, there's nothing, I don't see anything danger. I see very intentional invitation to the faith in this book. Hmm. It makes me wonder if what Rachel Lynn and Marilla's, well, I guess the book kind of implies this, that what they're, um, what they were lacking that kept that for, in, for example, in Rachel's case made her kind of a gossiping busybody, is that she didn't have a friend like Anne that helped her see the world that way. Um, and I, so you wonder, for example, if Diana would grow up to be someone like Rachel Lynn without Anne to help her see the world that way, because everybody is, mm-hmm. it's not just that their eyes are open to, you know, seeing nature as a delightful, beautiful thing, but it's also the idea that these things that are beautiful are sacred. She talks about how the memory of her imaginary friends are too sacred to talk about. Mm-hmm. So for her, there mm-hmm. is like a whole, the, the universe is just full of sacred, sacredness of sacred things. Um, and not the rest of the people don't see that. And that's, that's, it's not just that she shows, oh, that she tells Matthew, oh, that lane, that, that lake or whatever is beautiful. It's that she shows them these, these are sacred things worth protecting and loving and responding to in a poetic way. It's like why poetry mm-hmm. exists, basically, is what she's kind of showing them. Anyway. I kind of want to cheer. I totally agree. <laughs> my house is just about to be overrun by a bunch of children, so we should sign off now. Um <laughs> <laughs> Which I, you know, this is a podcast about children who are loud. Uh, at least this this, this series of books right. at Green Gables is. So it's a delightful thing, but it's going to make for a, you know, I'm I'm going to need to hang up. So um, any <laughs> final thoughts from either of you? Nope. No, I'm good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Uh, remember to uh, rate and review the podcast wherever you get it. If you are so inclined, if you've been enjoying that, we'd really help that help us spread the word. If you know people who are stuck at home right now and looking for things to read, um, Anna Green Gables is a great uh, possible book to do that with. So, you know, invite them to the show and uh, invite them to join the community. We'd, we'd love to have them. All right. With that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Curran. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you next week. 